passage this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for our adoption as sons and daughters. Thank you for the rich inheritance that we have in Christ. Give us ears to hear your words of life, your words of truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's my privilege to make a special announcement this morning about our senior pastor. As you know, he defended his dissertation on Friday. After he finished, they let him know that he not only passed, he passed with distinguished honors. So please welcome. Please welcome Dr. Jeff Kennedy. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for all your prayers. Thank you for your support. It's so weird now, like, that part of my brain isn't always thinking about this other thing, and so it's just great. It's a great feeling. Uh, when they welcomed me into the guild, and they said, you know, let us be the first to, to welcome you into the guild, doctor, and uh, I, I just almost burst into the doxology right there. I was just like, oh, you know, uh, but uh, we're finishing our series today. We're going to continue, but also finish this series. We've been in called His Workmanship. We got that out of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And today we're looking at this idea of being God's co-heirs, that passage that Michelle just read, Romans 8 uh, in verses 14 through 17 is so perfect for what we're going to talk about today. Now, over the course of the series, uh, we've, we've discovered that we are God's workmanship. And if you remember, that word is the Greek word poema. It's where we get the word poem, but in its context, it means a work of art. In fact, it means functional art. We are the workmanship. We are the work of God. We are God's creation created to do good works, created to function and to serve him in the world. And this is because he wants to put us as his work of grace, his work of mercy on display. He wants to show the world his immeasurable mercy, his immeasurable grace on display. And we also discovered that we're the sheep of his pasture. Uh, and he is our great shepherd, restoring our souls through righteous paths and ever present with us in the midst of our dark valleys in life to sustain us, to restore us, and to form us into the image of his son. And we also discovered that we are God's assembly. We are God's church. We are the convocation, the holy uh, assembly of God. We're the church and as such, we're the family of God. We're his household. And the scripture tells us, as we learned last week, we're the pillar and foundation, the stewards of his authority, his word, his salvation message, and truth in the world. And so today we end our series by one of the greatest statements in the Bible. And I just want to unpack this. I think you will enjoy it. So on what basis could you and I claim to be the co-heirs, the inheritors of God's kingdom? 
The first one is this. We are co-heirs by adoption and regeneration. We are co-heirs by adoption and regeneration. And these two ideas are really present there in the Romans 8 passage. What you'll see is you'll see this idea of adoption as his co-heirs, but then also this idea of the Spirit creating in us or the Spirit working in our lives to do something very transformative, very powerful. And so Romans eight fourteen says, for all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. This is how you know it. This is how you know you've got a child of God. They're led by the Spirit of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, and instead you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, which is the Aramaic word for honored father. Now, adoption has to do with the change of your legal status. Adoption has to do with the change of our legal status. This has to do with justification. You've seen this word in Romans or Galatians. Uh, justification is the legal or forensic declaration that you now stand in right relationship with God. You stand in relationship to him as you ought, reconciled, having made peace, him declaring you acquitted in his courtroom, but also it's a beautiful picture of the God who declares you in the courtroom not guilty. He declares you forgiven, saved, but then he takes you home as his child. He takes you home as his adopted son and daughter. So your legal status has been changed. But there is also this mysterious process of the work of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. And this has to do with the experience of transformation in our inner man. This is the word regeneration. And this is what it means. Regeneration has to do now with the inner change of the heart. So if adoption is legal and declarative and forensic, regeneration has to do, is existential. It means in terms of your inner man, the Holy Spirit is now, you are now a new creation who is in Christ. In speaking of this to the learned teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, Jesus uses this very metaphor in John chapter three. He says, Nicodemus, you're not coming into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And what's Nicodemus's problem? Well, apparently he can't understand analogies. Like, he's so overly literal. He's just stark literal. He just, well, how can I be born back in my mother's womb? Jesus says, that's just, stop. <laughs> okay? This is my, look, I have a PhD. I know what he said, okay? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, of course. Jesus has to say, okay, let me explain. A human being is born of water and blood. A human being is born of flesh. But a new creation, a new person is born of the Spirit. We have to be born again of the Spirit. So this has to do with regeneration, God making us new. So listen, if you belong to God this morning, then you have been adopted into his holy family, a change of your status legally. You were a stranger, now you're a son. You were a foreigner, now you're a family member. You were a sinner, now legally you're a saint. Praise God. And you've been born anew. There's this inner work of utter transformation that is beginning to happen from the inside out. Paul says it this way to his friend Titus. He says in Titus 3, 5, he says, uh, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, not, not by anything that we had offered to him. He saved us not by works of righteousness we had done, but according to his mercy, 
through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is how a person gets saved. They're adopted into his family, declared justified in his court. They become a member of his holy family, and they're changed, they're washed, they're renewed from the inside out. And this is the first basis of our claim to be his heirs. We are also his heirs by ransom and redemption. So we are also the co-heirs of God and Christ by ransom and redemption. Now listen, the words ransom and redemption, they're, they're co-extensive. You cannot pull them apart. You, you can't pull these two, two ideas apart. They really convey the same. They're mutually interpretive. I want to show you this. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Praise God. According to the riches of his grace. Verse 11, in him we also have received an inheritance. We're the inheritors of the kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs now with the Jews, members of the same body, the same family, and, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the word redemption that he uses here in chapter 1, verse 7, is this idea of a ransom price, which was paid in the ancient world for hostages, slaves, captives, and victims. So the ransom price, this redemption price that is paid to redeem is done so for a hostage, someone being held hostage, a slave, a captive, or a victim. And everyone in this world understands justice and fundamental fairness and judgment. And God has provided a way to satisfy his demands of divine justice while also simultaneously forgiving and justifying the offender who actually is guilty of the sin. And so God stands in the right. God, sta God is justified to declare us in the right on the basis of what? Jesus' price, Jesus' blood. I want to share with you just an incredible passage in the Old Testament. It's hundreds of years older uh, than Jesus, almost a thousand years old, older than Jesus. I want to share it with you. It's Psalm 49, 7 through 9. This is an incredible passage. The psalmist cries out. He articulates the, the dilemma of the human condition. He says, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. You bet. No payment is ever enough so that they should live forever and not see decay. Later on in that passage, what the psalmist says is, but God will ransom my life, God himself, right? So now look at what this passage claims. No one could possibly redeem you from your helpless estate. No one could redeem you. No one could pay the price for you. The price, the psalmist says, he knows, is just too high. Who could do it? Well, Jesus thinks he can do it. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I have come. My mission is to pay the price is to redeem you as a hostage, a slave, a captive, a victim of sin. Acts 20, 28, Paul says this to the elders. He gathers all the Ephesian elders together, and this is what he says. He says, keep watch, watch out over yourselves and the flock of God, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says, be shepherds, be good pastors of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, 
God, this word bought is the same word for ransom or redemption. It means God has redeemed you by his own blood, the blood of the God-man on the cross. And this is how he has done it. So God has redeemed us. He's paid the ransom price, satisfied his just demands for sin, having purchased us with his own blood shed on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and our many trespasses. Now, when Paul says this kinds of language, you need to understand that the Greek or the Roman, this is what they're seeing in their mind. This is the mental projection that they have. This is the, the picture that all of them are seeing because they've seen it hundreds of times in their city as they're out and walking around, and this is what they see. The adoption metaphor in the ancient world would have immediately evoked or created an image in the Greek or Roman's mind. He would have seen in his mind a wealthy landowner, an aristocrat, who was also childless and had to pass his property on to someone. What's he going to do? He's without an heir. And so coming down to the wharf and he watches the latest batch of young male and female slaves parade across the slave pedestal, the slave trader pedestal. And there he would bid and pay a ransom price. He would find just the right person. He would elect them. He would choose them. He would find them, and then he would pay the ransom price for them. He would redeem them from slavery. And then what what do you do? He would take them home. The aristocrat who was childless would take that slave home, and the first thing he would do was mark him. He would have him branded with the family seal of ownership and then begin the process of his transformation to a son, to an heir, He would take the servant down, he would take the slave down to the local courthouse, and he would file his adoption papers, and the adoption would become final, and from that moment on, that son, that slave, was now a son, now an heir, and an heir in training. And so the Greco-Romans, they would see this rich, rich, wealthy landowner, this aristocrat walking around the agora or the marketplaces, and teaching his young heir to be all of his ways, teaching him how to be a good aristocrat. And this is what the Greco-Romans, this is what is so shocking for them. They're like, what? God has done that for us? We were slaves in sin, and now God has paid the ransom price. God has redeemed us and brought us now into his family by adoption. And now he has branded us and sealed us by the Holy Spirit as his own? Yes. It's a shocking, shocking truth but it's true of every believer. And now you and I are in a process of sanctification where we are conforming to the image of the Father, conforming to the image of His Son, Jesus. So all of this is the basis of our inheritance in the saints. We are God's co-heirs with Christ and Israel on the basis of His choice and His plan to adopt us and renew our inner man, to to redeem us and to buy us back from the slavery of sin. So then what do we get? What do we inherit? How would you fantasize once in a while? Like, wouldn't it be great if there was this long lost uncle that you didn't know about and you, you just got like a check for a billion dollars in the mail? Wouldn't it be great? What do we get? What do we inherit? There are numerous things in the New Testament. We could, we could cover 30 things this morning, but there are two main ones that I, two main categories that I want to point out to you. The first one is that we inherit eternal life. Yeah. Doesn't that sound good? To live forever, to not have the permanency of death reign in our lives and keep us dead, but we come back to life. We live on forever with Christ in eternity. Hebrews 1.14 says, speaking of angelic beings, the author states this, are not they angels? Are not they all 
ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? I don't know what the first part of that sentence means. I don't know what angels are doing. That's kind of cool. I think it's pretty neat. You know, it's not my field of study. Okay, so, but the second half, I get the second half. As having received this grace and this gift of salvation, we are going to inherit. Aren't you already saved, though? Yes, but you are also, there are things that God has promised you that you are going to inherit. When you die at the end of this age. Now, I know that some of you have come out of a faith tradition where you were taught that this is not true. Some of you are from a faith tradition where you have been taught what is called works salvation. And you have walked around in your life with a tremendous anxiety over whether or not you're in or you're out. Over whether or not you've just committed one sin too many and you're out. Or you think, man, when I die, you've been told your whole life there's more work to do. Have you heard that? That's false. Because when God saves you, he saves you. And in the minute you get saved, you're as saved as you're ever going to be. And your heart, he seals you for eternity with the Holy Spirit. You're his child. You've been reborn, renewed. Look how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. It says, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. The gospel does come in word. There are some propositional truths you need to know. There are some truths in the scripture, some facts that the scripture makes that are true. And we need to, need to confess that they are true. But listen, the gospel does not come with mere words. The gospel comes in power, in the Holy Spirit to set the captive free, to buy you back and bring you into God's holy family. And what does it give us? Full assurance. <laughs> Do you just have half assurance today? Just have a little assurance, maybe a smidgen of assurance? No. You should have full assurance. Why? Because it's not up to you. What in your life that is up to you have you done that you haven't messed up? <laughs> Could you name something? Right? It's up to God. The writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 10, 22. He says, so, so then, so, here's the conclusion. Let us draw near. Come, let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. This is the reason why you and I can come boldly to the throne of God. This is the reason why you and I can be partakers of the grace of God because it's a gift, but you can come boldly with full assurance because of what he has done, because of his atoning sacrifice, which is final and once and for all and fully sufficient for you. There's no amount of sins you could commit in your life that Jesus hasn't already died for. He has already died for them. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy he has given us new birth, regeneration into a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a religious hope. It's a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for, for you. Who's keeping it in heaven for you? Not you. <laughs> he is. Amen. Try to take it out of his hands. He is keeping it in heaven for you. And this promise that you have of life with Jesus when you die, okay, you can take it to the bank. You can cash it in because God's signature is good to cash the check. He's good for it. This is a promise. 
And so if you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ by adoption and regeneration by the Holy Spirit, if you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ because you've been ransomed with the blood price of God's one and only Son, redeemed from slavery to sin, redeemed from being a hostage to the devil, then my friend, you're an, an inheritor of an indescribable salvation, a salvation that cannot tarnish, it's impervious, it cannot be uh, taken away from you, it is a salvation that is yours. Because God promises it to you. I want to read you a passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Oh, remember where this is. Read this to your friends. Go through it with them. This is so powerful. He says, for we know that if our earthly tent, now he's using the word tent here, uh, and everybody in this culture would be seeing like a Bedouin tent. It's mobile, it's portable, but it is temporary. And it's not like a castle. It's not like a temple. He's, so he's talking about our bodies as a tent. He says, for we know that if our, early tent, in our early, uh, if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, which it will be, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent. Did you groan in your tent this morning? <laughs> I got just turned 50, and, and every joint in my body hurts. And then I talk to some of you that are in your 70s, like Dennis Macheski comes up to me, and he's like, yeah, you just wait, boy. <laughs> he's like, you just wait till you're in your 70s. I'm like, oh, man. He just like gave me that little crooked finger, you know. And <laughs> you just wait. But in this, in this body, in this tent, we're groaning under pain and under suffering. And he says, and while we groan, while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, are you burdened today? Because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that the mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared for us, uh, prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So the Holy Spirit is now in your life. It's an earnest payment. And it guarantees the rest of the inheritance. It guarantees that the building, the temple is coming. Right now you're in a Bedouin tent, but you're going to be in a glorious new body, resurrected body for eternity. You have that promise. It's a promise. Verse 6, he says, so we are all, always confident. How often are we confident? Sometimes? Every other day? No. Always confident. And we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Listen, so long as you are in this world and you are in that tent, you are in that little slimy body of yours that's breaking down, you're away from the presence of the Lord in heaven. And we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But Paul says to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, we are confident. We're confident. And we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And therefore, whether we're at home or we're away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to God. And so this promise, listen, believer, the moment you die, whatever takes your life, cancer, COVID, accident, heart disease, whatever takes you, your soul is going to step into the glorious high beams of God's presence this is the promise of Scripture. You have it. But wait, there's more. <laughs> it gets even better, man. Number two, we inherit the world. We inherit the world. Oh, we, we have the direct presence of the Lord, the glorious high beams of his glory. 
to, that we expect when we die to go, to go be with him. In fact, uh, Paul is so confident in this expectation, he says Christians sit around wishing they could go. <laughs> they want to be present with the Lord because they have this confidence in Christ, but we also inherit a new world. Jesus said this, blessed are the meek. What does meek mean? It means humble. Blessed are those who are humble enough to confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord because what will they inherit? the world. And then Paul says this. He says, now, he's given us his son. How much more, having given us his son, will he not give us all things? What do believers inherit? We inherit the whole world. And we don't inherit this exact world. We inherit this world resurrected. We inherit this world renewed. Romans four thirteen, Paul says this. He says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, through the Torah but through the righteousness that comes through faith. And what he's saying in this context is all of Abraham's faith children, right? All of God's children by faith, they're children of Abraham. And what God promised Abraham was the whole world. God promised that the meek shall inherit the earth, that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Romans 8, 18 through 21. Listen to these words. They're powerful. Listen to what our expectation as believers is. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Are you suffering? Do you have disease in your body? Are you suffering loss, the loss of a loved one? God bless you. My heart goes out to you. But your suffering your worst suffering is nothing, Paul says, compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in you. You just wait. Powerful passage. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons and daughters to be revealed. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself would also be set free from its bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Do you see what the plan is here? God is going to start with the man and the woman. He's going to fix us. He's going to renew us and resurrect us. And then he gets to put us, he promises to put us in a resurrected world, a world that is just waiting on edge for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Praise God. And that's our future. That's your hope. That's what your life is driving toward. That's where you're going as a believer. And then look how it all ends. We'll end with this. Revelation 21. Look at this picture. Verses 3 through 8. John said in this vision, he says, And then I, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, God's dwelling is with humanity, and, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. (laughs) And then the one seated on the throne said, Behold, look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful, they're true. Then he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I, was, I, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Are you thirsty today for life? And the one who conquers will, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
But the cowards and the faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Who overcomes? Who overcomes? The book of Revelation says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Because they love their lives not to the point of death, right? They love not their lives to the point of death. We overcome because Jesus' sacrifice as God's lamb is fully sufficient. And we overcome because of the blood of Christ and because we have made the good confession. We confess that we believe that Jesus' death washes away our sins. And through that, we have sonship. And through that, we have Renewal, and through that we have eternity, and through that we have a new creation that's waiting for us. Amen? Amen. So finally, let me challenge you, encourage you. As partakers, having received the Holy Spirit, you are God's children by faith. And if children, then heirs. You're an heir through adoption and rebirth. You're God's heir by ransom and redemption because he paid the blood price for you and brought you into his family. He thought you were worth redeeming. And you inherit salvation that comes with an assurance. You inherit a kingdom and a new creation. Be encouraged today, believer. Be encouraged. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Bow your head. Close your eyes. Father, we thank you for this good word. Oh, as believers... We are just comforted. We're encouraged. We're blown away that this would be the plan. That along with the grace and the mercy and the salvation that you've given us now and the forgiveness, our slates have been wiped clean. You are waiting for us in eternity. And you have, you have a new house, a new body, a resurrection body, and a new world that, that is waiting for us. And God, we thank you for that. Praise your name forever. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that hope, now's the time. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Don't you wait. Don't you walk out that door without Christ. And will you bow your heart right now? Will you surrender? Will you embrace this Jesus who died on a cross for your sin, this, this glorious sovereign king who came as the world's rightful ruler, the world's rightful Lord, and then he submitted to death on a cross for you. And then this king rose from the dead to vindicate, to prove his claims that he is God's spotless lamb for you, for us. Embrace it in your heart right now. Say, God in heaven, I believe that. God in heaven, I believe it and I need it so desperately because my life is full of death. My body is full of death. But you promised me life. And I receive the life that is in Jesus and his blood. I receive the resurrection life of the resurrection of Christ. I receive it. And understand right now the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart, giving you the ability to confess Christ as Lord and Savior and to cry out, Abba, Father, with the rest of the children. And the inheritance is yours. And you can be a co-heir today. God, thank you as we as we pray again and sing this last song as the prayer from our heart, God, would you just solidify our commitment? God, would you just, would you just uh, put our feet down in the foundation of your truth today? We 
praise you, Lord. We rejoice in you. And thank you for these beautiful people today who got baptized, who said yes to Jesus, who joined the family, who confessed their sins and their faith in Jesus publicly by dying and rising today. Praise God. Amen. Thank you.